You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile's heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 34, March 2nd, 2017. Today on our show, we have Vic Bonacci. Vic is a, an agile coach at BioRad Laboratories in Irvine, California. Vic is also the founder of Agile Coffee Podcast and a co-chair of the Scrum Gathering in San Diego, California, coming up in April 2017. Welcome to the show, Vic. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Stephen. Tell us a little bit about how you became involved with Agile and your work that you're doing at BioRad Laboratories. Yeah, great. Good question. Um, you know, going back uh, in the early 2000s, 2002, 2003, I was in business school here in, at USC. And at the time, I took a project management class, and I don't think Agile came up at all. Um, but I'd been a programmer beforehand, so I knew uh, a bit about XP, um, read the, the Kent, Beck, Kent Beck books, and um, did some pair programming back in the day. So got a job as a project manager, and then kind of came to find out about Scrum and started applying that at the workplace. It was a very, very process heavy workplace. So uh, Scrum was, um, although it, it kind of shined a nice bright light on some of the things that we weren't doing really well, it didn't really catch on in that workplace, no matter how hard I tried. So I had to leave um, that employer to to kind of develop my own skills in, in Agile and get some more experiences built up in Scrum. Um, so I hopped around a few companies here in Southern California, getting progressively uh, more competent in, in scrum mastering and then coaching. Uh, got here at BioRad about a year ago. I've been here 12 months now, and they hired me as an internal coach. I've got four scrum masters right now um, who work with me, and uh, you know we're building out a, a large-scale informatics uh, initiative to go along with our control substances that we we sell to laboratories too. So it's exciting here. There's always so much to learn in Agile, which is why I've been drawn to it, among many other reasons. Um, you know, just that that constant learning cycle that not only your teams are in, but but me myself. I mean, I'm always trying to inspect and adapt on my own processes and, and what's interesting to me, um, either on the job or just kind of long term, what do I want out of my career and my life? And working in that type of environment, I would assume, you know, being some of these things are life critical and some of these things are highly regulated. Are there any areas in Agile that you needed to change around that might be slightly unorthodox or just very different than the normal way that you would do it if you were just building an e-commerce website for that matter? Yeah, it's a great question. When I first was being interviewed here, I was asking those questions too, but um, 
but happy to say that uh, there wasn't much need for for change. The software that we're working with isn't going into any devices. Um, so although there is some regulation, uh, mostly what we're doing is building either websites or um, or applications that allow the laboratories to compare peer data to each other. Uh, so nothing necessarily um, difficult or overly complex uh, regarding regulatory. But we do have that coming up. I mean, I'd, in Michigan, I'd worked uh, with some health insurance firms there back in the past and, and the hospital as well. I'd worked with the University of Michigan Hospital and we dealt a lot with uh, patient data. That was right when um, HIPAA was, was just coming about. Um, so there was a lot of kind of scrambling to understand what does all this mean back in the um, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but here by now, you know, we, what we're doing is not yet, um, it's not yet necessary to be HIPAA compliant with the, with the data that we have currently. Uh, however, the initiatives that we're getting into, we have to kind of reevaluate and determine is that something that A, we want to get into and B, if we do, what does that mean for our regulatory kind of, uh, procedures? Yeah. And that's, that's a, actually a huge question on a lot of companies minds how do we go down the agile path in in the face of meeting regulatory compliance requirements and you know maybe some heavyweight governance that's beyond our control you know implied or um, imposed on us by the government and so on so, so what are some of the ways that um, you or what are, what are some of the challenges you would see and advice that you would give to the listeners when they're trying to um, follow agile practices but have those kinds of constraints. It's always better to to try something than to just kind of think, you know, there's too much of it, it's too daunting, therefore I'll give up. I mean, you know, you got to start somewhere. So what can you do? So if you're working with teams, you know, you can always try implementing some kind of some of the, you know, the the things that scrum employs, uh, you know, the the small teams, the inspect and adapt meetings, the short cadence, uh, small batch size, things like that. You don't need to necessarily, um, you know, change too much of your process around regula regulatory for that. Um, but I am working with the PIMO office right now here. And uh, again, it's kind of more on the life sciences side. So they're, they're really having a fun, challenging time, fun slash challenging time, kind of thinking, okay, what does this mean? We've got this eight month or longer cycle of kind of ideation uh, that they've applied some scrum principles to, to get it down to just about 10 weeks or so. So that shaves, you know, cuts it down to about a third of the time. And then the development time, um, which would be measured in years, three, four, five years, uh, we haven't yet applied any scrum or agile practices to it, but uh, we're anticipating even that we can find uh, vast efficiencies um, so that we can either uh, start developing um, some of the new formulas or the new products that we're working on um, in parallel to other work or to a point and then stop uh, and then kind of introduce, you know, the decisions that have to happen at the at the stage gate um, that they're used to working in. But to answer it again briefly, just just start with something, something that gives you a little bit more um, more efficiency and helps the team um, get along better and enjoy their work better. And have you ever any? Did you have any challenges getting that team to work better? Were there any 
because of you know because of maybe bureaucracy or existing corporate culture? Like, what did the role of the culture and the bureaucracy play in in um, in, in all of that? First of all, where I work here now, it's um it's a very old and a um, historically a conservative culture. However, they embraced um, agile and the transformation before I got here. They had um, they had hired a few agile uh, coaches, external coaches, and and did um, an enormous amount of training. Uh, they offered it to people outside of the software um, group as well. Uh, so they were very receptive to it. So when I came in, it was with open arms, and and they said, you know, anything that you want to try, we're we're up for. So. Um, so very little resistance at all, uh, certainly from the top and even from the, uh, the teams themselves, very open to the idea of, hey, let's give it a try and um, let's talk about it and see if it works. Um, a good number of things we tried and they just, we just didn't feel like it was the right thing for us. Uh, so we moved on. I would say by and large, though, we're pretty much a standard scrum shop compared to uh, a lot of the other places I've been over the last seven or eight years. Uh, we still do scrum pretty much by the book. Uh, it's only in these newer areas that I kind of alluded to with the PMO, uh, where they're just now kind of dipping their toe in the water. But again, not too much resistance, I'm happy to say. So was it more of the value that they saw? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that to put it into perspective, we're a very big company. We're international, um, thousands of employees worldwide. However, where I'm at uh, here in Irvine, our division is only 500 or so. Um, so within the division is really my kind of area of, of expertise. My perspective really belongs here. Um, throughout the organization, though, I'd say that um, other other departments, other business divisions have been trying Agile. Um, I'm not sure to what success. However, it's a, it's kind of a, a feather in the cap of some of the people here to say, hey, we've got our own Agile coach. And they kind of like... Uh, uh, send me off here, send me off there, have me talk to people on the phone, things like that about Agile. So it's it's kind of fun. But um, yeah, here they they were working on software as a an add-on to some of the other products that we'd been offering. Like I say, we make these liquid controls that, that are sent off to laboratories to kind of calibrate their equipment. So software wasn't a main component of our uh, our sales strategy. It was kind of given away for free. Um, but over the years, they've come to see that they needed to mature as a software organization. So I think that's why after kind of a few false starts, um, they were really ready to jump all into to Agile and Scrum in particular. Um, in fact, it's funny because we had Woody's Will come down here um, about 10 months ago or so, and he's from Southern California as well. I've known him for quite a few years now, and he did a, a two-day workshop on mob programming, and uh, I was really happy to see that that took off. That got um, taken in by the teams. Not all the teams are doing mob programming. They all were introduced to it. But, um, you know, a good two-thirds of them are doing mob programming for uh, most of their sprint, if not the whole sprint. Um, we're not quite as sophisticated as some of the other places that do mob programming, but it's a lot of fun to see the teams kind of take something and try it and, uh, you know, either adapt to it or or kind of adapt it itself, you know, and and make of it what they need to. Um, but I'll keep you posted on how the culture is is progressing because you know it's it's fun. I've only been here one year, but I'm surrounded by people who've been here 15, 20, 30 years, and I just cannot fathom being <laughs> being anywhere for that long. So I could see how if you're kind of in a in an organization with a lot of longtime people, um, there is that kind of built up resistance to change. But at what point? 
is there kind of a a bounce back from that where where change is kind of something that people are looking forward to? So you you mentioned Woody, and I, you know I have to say I'm a huge fan of all of his work, and um, in, in fact the movement that he started with, you know the whole no estimates concept, um, as well as mob programming, but. So give us give us your take a little bit on, you know, elaborate on mob programming and the no estimates movement and so forth. I'll tell you, as far as the no estimates goes, um, I really love following the hashtag on Twitter and seeing what kind of um, discussions and debates it prompts. Um, we do estimating here, and it's something that I've kind of alluded to with the teams and the scrum masters, the product owners, that if they ever want to experiment with no estimates, uh, especially if we get more mature in our, more disciplined, I should say, in our practices, um, not just Scrum, but kind of our XP practices, uh, maybe moving more toward Kanban, then uh, I'd be all for them doing, uh, going no estimates. Um, but I mean, right now, I don't think that anyone here is prepared for that. Uh, it, it'd be something to look forward to, though. Um, going back to mob programming, though, yeah, I think that that's, that's just, that looks like, and I'm not a developer anymore. I'm not a developer on mob teams, but I've sat in with mob mobbing teams. Um, and it's it's just a fun way to learn and a, and a way to grow and, and become uh, a high performing team, I think, much faster because you're you're working with each other and you're getting to know each other just so much more intimately now as uh, co-workers than you would be if you were kind of sitting on the other side of a cube wall and maybe just seeing each other once a day at a stand-up or something like that. Um, you know, I did a lot of pair programming uh, back in my day, but but the mobbing is is just taking it up a notch, you know, going up to 11. And uh, I always thought that was a, a fun way to work. Again, I was mostly observing it, so I was looking at it from the outside. But, but there's a lot of uh, very fast, accelerated learning that can happen uh, in the mob. And then when you talk about what happens to you know, the, the scrum, um, framework, if you're, if you're a scrum shop going into mob programming, I think a lot of that necessarily goes away. You don't really do a lot of estimating. You don't really have a, uh, a product backlog and you don't really go through the refinement ceremony and the planning ceremonies as rigidly as you might, um, if you were kind of a newer team to scrum. So, um, I think mobbing is just a, an evolutionary step, um, in, in the way that we work. Yeah, it's it's very reminiscent of, you know, the hackathon type culture, um, where it's like, you know, let's let's get something done, let's get an MVP out the door, and you know, let's let's do something valuable, get it in front of the customer as quickly as possible, and and uh, then make tweaks on it after that. You know, go from there. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned hackathons. We're implementing our first hackathon here um, in three weeks, right after, well. We're recording this a little earlier, but um, but we're we're doing our our hackathon here coming up in a few weeks. Here we're going to do a three day hackathon, and it's the first time anyone here has done a hackathon. A lot of people here haven't even heard of hackathons. That's how long they've been programming in this place um, that they haven't gotten out um, into the community where startup weekends and hackathons kind of take place all the time. Um, so I love hackathons and I, I think you're absolutely right. It's a great way to iterate quickly on a product, get an MVP out there in front of customers and, and see what feedback you get. Did management give you any pushback when it came to just, you know, experimenting with some mob programming or, you know, in the areas that you've worked with or 
you know, they, I could see what they would say their downsides would be. But, uh, you know, have you experienced any of that resistance when you started implementing it? Or And if you have, what kind of advice would you give to the listeners, you know, when they're thinking of trying to implement it in their organizations? Yeah, I think it's a boring answer from from my perspective here is that, um, no, they didn't really give too much pushback. Certainly, they were a little bit skeptical, but they were also trusting in um, – in the process and and the fact that we would try something and have a real conversation about is it working or not um and they saw that it was working and and they're fine with it um i think though that uh if there was any pushback it was mostly in the form of you know the the typical thing that you might hear well why do i have to pay five people to work on the same bit of code you know what's what's going on there won't you guys doesn't that affect your uh, your overall productivity, and it didn't take more than uh, you know a couple of sprints. The teams got in the rhythm, and uh, and they got um, got some code out the door right away. It was released to a customer as a beta, and uh, a lot of our internal user groups or internal groups were using it, I should say. And uh, we noticed that the quality was high, and you could ask any of the developers on the team um, anything about the code, and they all seemed to know, you know, how. How to go in and make changes to it. It wasn't one person had that knowledge stuck in his or her head, and if that person wasn't in, then, then no one could work on it. Um, so I think that management here bought in right away, and for the most part, the teams adopted it. Uh, we've got a couple of teams that are, um, for one reason or another, not adopting it, but I wouldn't say that they're resisting it necessarily. They just, uh, maybe they're just not ready for it, or you know, they figured out that they like the way that they're working. When you talk about mob programming and its influence on the Scrum methodology in, in particular, um, I actually don't see much of a change in insofar as the if the whole mob or the whole team is working on the backlog, you're not assigning it to indi individual developers. I've always thought that you know Scrum was not deliberately not prescriptive in how you actually implement. Like you know you can use pair programming, mob programming. Everyone works on the same thing. Everyone works on a different thing. Um, what are some of the areas that you feel um, agile and Scrum evolve by doing things like mob programming, in addition to the estimates, which we can talk about um, as well? Yeah, I think that um, the one thing that I've seen with with teams, and we still do use our our two week uh, sprints um, or iterations, but but I've seen other mob teams where they don't necessarily um, adhere to that that time box, um, that prescribed uh, out of the out of the box scrum uh, kind of time box of using an iteration at all. I mean, they may still do their retrospectives. I'm sure that there's a lot of planning that goes on, but it doesn't feel like it has to fall on every other Wednesday. Uh, a retrospective might come up after something is released, which might not be within a, a specific you know, two week uh, time box or whatever sprint length they might be using. Um, so that's something I think that's going away. But but you're certainly right. I mean, it's I don't think Scrum says and I'm obviously we all know Scrum does not say that you must use um, a sprint of a certain length um, and you're supposed to be uh, always, always adapting, inspecting and adapting uh, what works for the team. So uh, so if a team is new to Scrum, new to kind of some of these agile uh, practices, then certainly it's good to be a little bit more prescriptive and uh, you know wait until they uh, kind of understand the why are we doing this kind of get out of the shoe stage into the ha stage right um, and 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 then let them start to experiment a bit and I think that's what mob programming does it's it's great for these teams now because they're they've been um, through the scrum 
uh, trainings and kind of working with Scrum for at least half a dozen sprints, if not longer. So they kind of knew the purpose of a lot of these uh, these meetings uh, that we've had. But um, right now, going into mobbing and trying some other things is is now uh, a bit a bit easier because they understand why they're doing it. You know what what the purpose was of of kind of some of these other things that they're working on. So that that's really great perspective on you know um, community involved with programming. Uh, you're you're very passionate about the coaching aspect of agile as well, and I know that you've been involved with numerous different you know coaching events and the coaching community as well, Vic, having helped to organize the scrum coaching retreat in San Diego last year. So talk to us a little bit more about your views on the community surrounding agile and and effects on culture and that that sort of uh, perspective on agile. Sure. Now you're getting into my wheelhouse. I mean, this is why I really am drawn to to Agile in the first place. It's just the community that we have around it. Um, earlier, I said it's that lifelong learning that I was interested in. But the, the other component for me uh, is just all about building community and collaboration, not only within the workplace, but as you just said, outside the workplace. Um, yeah, I was, I was a co-organizer of the Scrum coaching retreat that we did down there in San Diego in 2015. Um, I'd belonged to a retreat, um, the Scrum coaching retreat up in Seattle the year previous. And um, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I, I started up the Agile Coffee podcast based on on the lean coffees that I'd been holding down here in SoCal. And that came from uh, going up to San Francisco for a, a little conference over a weekend several years ago, talking to Jim Benson there, finding out about Lean Coffee and just going, wow, this is an amazing way to get involved with my community and to kind of start my own little private think tank. Because really, that's what a Lean Coffee is for me, is it's a chance for me to work through problems or questions that I might have. And everyone who comes is like, oh, Vic's the expert. Well, that's a crock of BS. I mean, I don't know anything. I just kind of like throw these cards on the table and get other people talking. And um, and it helps all of us. So the Lean Coffee was kind of my first um, toe in the water, if you will, in the Agile community down here. And then I just kind of took it from there. I started going to more and more of the user groups locally and then regionally up and down the coast. I went to a whole bunch of uh, Agile Opens, uh, the one in... Portland, the one in Seattle. Yeah. And, and I mean, really, you know, um, a lot of us rely on each other for ideas because, uh, especially in the agile community, there's a huge emphasis on, you know, sort of humility and recognizing your own limitations and so on. And the power of multiple different brains being pulled together almost like a, you know, like a holacracy type of concept where, um, you know, we're all kind of collaborating on some level um, to make it happen for multiple different organizations. So it's fantastic. You know, the, the, the community is what it's all about, right? That's what makes it happen. And, and building on that too, I just got out of um, uh, Agile Coaching Institute does their, their five-day boot camp. I just did that. And that's, opening me up to another um, cohort. There were, I think, 30 of us there. So that's another um, door to a new community that just opened up. I was in Munich at the global gathering there, and that opens up to kind of a more of an international um, 
community of friends now that I have and associates. So um, just the sky's the limit here with uh, with what we're doing and what we can do uh, with all the various communities, either in real life or virtual or some blend of the two. Vic, you definitely seem to be on the forefront of a lot of uh, emerging trends between, you know, bringing Agile into these particular types of old school or, or old school organizations and doing these larger transformations. And of course, with experimenting with some other uh, new features, such as, uh, you know, the, the, with the estimates and mob programming, what are some of your predictions and thoughts about where Agile as a, as a methodology, just as a movement, like where is, where is it going next? Uh, you know, what is, you know, you're on the ground in the community at the gatherings and everything else. Uh, what are you hearing? What are you thinking? Kind of one of the things that I love about your podcast is that you're asking that question and it's great to go back in the archives and see what everyone else is, is saying too. And see if we, as a, as a group uh, can kind of help either predict or make that future ourselves. But um, I think that the one, the one takeaway that I had uh, when you asked that question, the one answer that I can maybe give is, is just that it's, it's becoming, it can become more specialized. And I, it sounds trite to say it's going beyond it, but I mean, it, it really is getting into, um, you know, areas of hardware. We already talked about the life sciences and, and the project management office that I'm working in, trying to in, introduce agile uh, principles into into a lot of what we're doing. Um, certainly, I've seen a lot of uh, people in education making great headways um, there. Uh, so I think just seeing just more more niche pockets kind of taking on. Agile and uh, and Scrum and and maybe elements of of XP or Kanban or something else and and just trying it out and seeing if there's process improvements and uh, and ways to to work better together um, and I think it's just more ubiquitous and and we won't be using maybe the terminology of Agile you know from the last 20 years anymore but we might start coming up with you know other other words other phrases that kind of encapsulate um, the same principles, but they're no longer like the domain of, of, of IT. Whenever I heard Scrum for so many years, I just thought, always thought of an IT shop. And, and that's no longer the case anymore because, you know, Scrum is popping up in so many different places. Um, and, and, and we're starting to see also that, you know, Agile isn't just this new thing that was, was developed and created um, for IT, but it, it's been around and in so many forms, uh, you know, before before programming even came about, so so it's good to kind of see it kind of start to blend in more with the uh, the rest of the human consciousness, if you will, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And also, Vic, you know, we we like to give our guests an opportunity to share with the audience and our listeners, you know, what they might be working on. So for the next six months or year and beyond. Um, what does the future hold for Vic? And we have the, I know that we have the scrum gathering coming up in San Diego. So you could talk a little bit about that if you'd like, or, you know, if you have any books or other things going on, then, you know, have at it. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, right around the corner, as you said, we've got the, uh, the global scrum gathering in San Diego, uh, hashtag is S G C A L S G Cal. Um, that's right here. So we're right in the thick of things. Um, and that's been a treat. Uh, Kim Brainerd and I, actually it was Kim and Stuart Young who, who wanted to get an application in to become co-chairs. And Stuart had to, had to withdraw from the process. Uh, you know, he does a lot of work with the Scrum Alliance as the illustrator. Um, 
the graphical facilitation and all that. Um, you should know you're stalking him, right, Daniel? So <laughs> yeah, no, actually, uh, Stuart's a great guy. He illustrated my book, and he's been a a, a longtime contributor to our the Scrum community and Agile community at large. So yeah, he's a good guy. Into the the swing of the co-chairing, uh, you know that was a lot of work. I kind of had to put off some of my other projects. I was working, uh, as you know, about the um, the podcasting. I had had to put off a few podcast episodes, so uh, I think I had a gap of about five or six months there where there wasn't an episode going out. Uh, but now I'm getting back to a more regular cadence there. Um, I started uh, a few decks of coaching cards. Uh, you can go to agilecoachingcards.com and you can find not only the um, the lean coffee inspired decks, but uh, also I have an agile coaches toolkit deck out now. Um, and I'm, I'm really close to launching a second podcast now just on servant leadership. I think servant leadership is probably the one part that um, kind of transcends agile, but it's woven throughout agile uh, that really kind of drives me. Um, I've got that, that continuous learning and the commitment to my community. And, and I think, uh, my stance comes from is very well grounded, I should say, in servant leadership. So I want to continue exploring what does that mean and how does uh, servant leadership um, play out in in our great big world. Any plans to apply for CEC or CST? Yeah, the um, the CTC application uh, is now in, and and we're we're waiting to hear back from that. Um, I was told I should have skipped CTC and just gone right to CEC. And uh, in hindsight, you know, that might have been the wiser choice, um, but it was a nice process going through the uh, the CTC um, application. As far as CST goes, uh, or yeah, CST, um, I, I love training people. I love teaching and, and talking to people who are new to it. Um, and I've done uh, a number of co-trainings to this point and, and my own independent multi-day trainings, but uh, I'm just not at a point right now where... Um, where I'm really putting that on the front burner. Maybe someday I'll come back to it and revisit it and say, yeah, I, I do want to become uh, kind of more, I want to use training in my workplace a bit more. And I think a CST is the necessary step to to kind of validate that. But right now I've got enough other things going on that uh, the CST isn't isn't really up there for me. Well, Vic, that's that's great perspective on you know what's going on with you and your and the future of Agile, and we really appreciate having you on the show and taking the time. Thanks, it's uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you guys, and uh, best of luck. And we will see you both in uh, in San Diego in a in a short time. Next time on Agile Next, we have Kim Brainerd. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv. 